Good morning, everyone. I want to talk to you a little bit about just things that you know to be true, but uh, this kind of revisit them a little bit. In our court of law, there are several levels of proof that are required uh, to reach a verdict. In some cases, you have what's called a preponderance of the evidence. And what that simply means is that something is more likely to be true than not true. So all you need in a case like this is at least 51% probability that something actually happened. That's the burden of proof that's necessary in a preponderance of the evidence. In other cases, it is more. The evidence needs to be stronger. It needs to be clear and convincing. So if you were to sit on a jury like this, you would need to have a firm conviction that something actually happened. It's more than 51%. It's highly probable. And then, in some cases, where the judgment is severe, like that of a, a capital punishment case, in these cases, the, the burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the highest level of proof. And in these cases, a decision is made because there's no possible reason to believe otherwise. Now, it's not an absolute certainty. That's difficult to accomplish. But if you were to sit on a jury, there would have to be no other logical explanation to believe something different. As you walk through those, you notice that the more severe the judgment, the greater the burden of proof. And the same is true even when you look in Scripture. Now, you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read a verse to you in Deuteronomy. This is God's law. Listen to what he has to say when it comes to looking at the burden of proof in Scripture. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, it says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the man who have the dispute, both the men shall, who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. And the judge shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge evil from among you. The idea here there is that, that God's law has the same requirements that we see in our own laws, that there is a burden of proof that is required. And you'll notice from that passage that, that one witness is not sufficient. You have to have multiple witnesses. And as you saw there, the, the witnesses, if it's a severe issue, then go before priests and judges to present their case. The whole idea here is that you want to establish credibility. You want to prevent injustice from false witnesses. I believe you see the very same goal when it comes to the testimony concerning who Jesus is and what he came to do. I bring all that up just because in the last few weeks, in the weeks that we will have yet ahead of us, we've been looking at the birth announcements of Jesus. And in a very real way, these are heavenly witnesses to the truth and claims about who Christ is 
and what he came to do. It's a testimony that is confirmed by these witnesses and then more added to it. As we continue to see this morning, we'll hear of the prophecy made by Elizabeth. Next week, we'll look at that spirit-filled prophecy of a man named Simeon. And then as you look at the life of Christ, you see that he confirms the very same testimony that was given about him before he was born. And then after him, you see the disciples confirming that testimony that he then gave during his life. Even his enemies take the stand and ultimately choose to crucify him for the claims that he made and that the witnesses before him proclaimed. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the scripture tells us that you, shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the uttermost parts of the earth. And then before the final judgment, the most significant of all judgments in human history, because the verdict has eternal consequences. At that time, I want you to listen to the witnesses that are present. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to what this says. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever every living thing it's not a preponderance of the evidence It's not clear and convincing. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. What you see in that moment is beyond a shadow of a doubt. Every creature, whether they have placed faith in him or not, will claim the understanding of truth that will be revealed. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I want you to understand that as we look at the birth announcements of Jesus, that's not new information. This has been the testimony of heaven since the beginning of all creation. And so listen closely to what these witnesses have to say. Because they are proclaiming a truth that comes with an invitation. Do you believe? Do you believe the testimony of these witnesses of who Christ is and what he came to do? And has your life been changed because of it? Before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful that in your grace and mercy and love towards us, you didn't just spring something new on us that we couldn't see coming, but in fact, from the beginning of creation, you have declared with witnesses from heaven and earth and all the things that you've created that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that salvation is found only through him. So as we look at your word this morning, that testimony that you gave us through your scripture, I pray that we see this with a fresh set of eyes, that the conviction of truth is embedded and rooted in our heart even deeper than it ever has been. And perhaps, maybe for some of us, for the very first time, we see the clear and convincing evidence of who you are 
and what you came to do. May your spirit indwell and work among us for the praise and glory of your name. Amen. If you would turn to Luke chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, and Luke chapter 1. We're going to read his account of the announcement given to Mary, the mother of Jesus. So if you would follow along with me, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation, what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Last week, we looked at uh, the story of the angel who spoke to Joseph in a dream. And here we see an angel who visited Mary in person, an angel by the name of Gabriel. Now, Joseph didn't have a chance to dialogue or ask questions. He simply woke from his dream, believed what he had been told, and adjusted his life accordingly. Now, Mary, on the other hand, has a chance to ask questions. There's dialogue, and understandably so. There's a lot more at stake, right? Mary is the one that God has chosen to carry this very special child in her womb for the next nine months. So the angel Gabriel visits her in person. We know from Scripture that Gabriel is one of two angels that we meet by name. Gabriel is the angel who explained the vision of the 70 weeks to Daniel. He's the angel who made the announcement to Zechariah that his son, John the Baptist, would be born. And here he is the angel who announced the birth of Jesus to Mary. If you look at each one of those encounters, every time Gabriel speaks, he is speaking of the promise of the Messiah. Every time. So Gabriel announces to Mary the news about her child that she will carry. He tells her in verse 28, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. That word for favored one literally means the one on whom grace has been found. Gabriel's greeting doesn't in any way suggest that that Mary is somehow separate and apart from the rest of mankind. She's not sinless or, or set apart because of some special purity. God chose her by his grace not on any special merit of her own. And it seems as if even Mary understands that because if you look in verse 29, it says that she was greatly troubled by this greeting from the angel Gabriel. Why would God send an angel to her? She's probably wondering, what makes me any different than anybody else? There's some confusion. And so Gabriel explains. 
Notice how Gabriel seeks to relieve Mary's fear by turning her attention towards God. In verse 30, he says, don't be afraid. Essentially saying, God is in control. His grace has found you. The comfort that he gives is not based on Mary's abilities, on her worthiness, or, or even her complete understanding. The comfort he gives is based on the grace of God. Because in the end, this is not about what Mary has done. This is about what God will do. So what Gabriel first reveals is ultimately the same message that the angel spoke to Joseph in his dream. Look at verse 31 again. It goes on to explain, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. There's a miraculous conception. She will bear a son. She will name him Jesus. The very same things that the angel told Joseph in his dream. But then Gabriel goes on to explain other significant factors in the miraculous birth of this child. There's really five things that he highlights as he continues. The first in verse 32 is that he will be great. So Jesus will be set apart. He'll be unique. He will be unlike anyone else. He will be great. Goes on to say he will be called the, the Son of the Most High. Gabriel is testifying that Jesus is unique because he has a divine origin. He's known by the heavenly realms. And he has come to mankind with a divine blessing. And he goes on to explain those, really the, the three remaining, say that, that God will give him the, the throne of, the father Dave, of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. These three are tied together because each one is a greater fulfillment of the one before. Jesus is a descendant of David, who is divinely appointed to the throne of David as a ruler from among the Jews. And his kingdom will have no end. Now, as you hear that, it, it should bring back the, the recollection of what we talked about last week. Because it's an echo of the very same message that the angel gave to Joseph in his dream. And what you and I need to understand that the angel Gabriel here is explaining, as did the angel in Joseph's dream, not new information. But instead, they are being a witness to the truth of the promises that God has made all along. And they're declaring that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those promises that God has made. He's the promised Messiah. A descendant of David. The Son of God, a Savior who came to save us from our sins. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And so now we have two witnesses, the angel who spoke to Joseph and now Gabriel in his visit to Mary. And they are both testifying of the very same truth. But Mary has a very important question for clarification. So look at verse 34 says, and Mary said to the angel, Gabriel, how can this be? 
since I am a virgin. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For, the, for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, who has conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, Mary needs to explain how it would be possible for her to be pregnant if she's never been with a man. That's a legitimate question. Wouldn't you agree? Now, keep in mind, the author of this book is Luke, who's a doctor. Luke was a physician by training. So he knew of the, the miracle of life probably from his own expertise. And you and I know even more. Through scientific research, we know that at the moment of conception, the 23 chromosomes and some 40,000 genes from each parent combine into one single cell. That includes, listen to this, in that one cell, it includes all the physical characteristics of that child. Instantly, they determine whether it's a boy or a girl. They determine facial features, even body type, even the color of your eyes, your hair, your skin. At the moment of conception, God has already uniquely designed you to be you. And from that single cell, miraculous transformation takes place to become over 3.7 trillion cells present within the human body. That is a miracle. And Mary wants to know, how is that miracle possible if I've never been with a man? So Gabriel explains to her that the miracle of life is a work of God in any and all circumstances. The power of God is what made her pregnant. The child that she bears is not because of a man. It is a work of God. That's why he will be known as the Son of God. And then, as if to make his point, Gabriel informs Mary of the pregnancy of her relative Elizabeth. Look at verse 36 again. He says, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she, who was called barren, is now in her sixth month. Now this is kind of curious, don't you think? What does Elizabeth's pregnancy have to do with Mary's pregnancy? Well, in his answer, Gabriel tells Mary that Elizabeth is old. She's barren. In other words, there's no logical explanation for her pregnancy. It, it, shouldn't, be, it shouldn't happen. It's physiologically impossible. But he's saying that nothing is impossible with God. Gabriel wants Mary to understand that life does not exist apart from God. Every birth is a miraculous work of God, hers being no exception. But he goes on to explain that the child she carries is in fact unique. 
He is what he calls a holy offspring. He will be known as the Son of God. Notice that Gabriel identifies Jesus by what others will say about him. He will be called the Son of God. That's important because Gabriel is not testifying that Jesus somehow becomes the Son of God. Jesus was not created by God. He's not the offspring of, of, of God and Mary in some supernatural way. The miracle of Mary's pregnancy, listen to this, is that the one who has eternally existed becomes a man. It's like Paul explains to the Philippians. Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was ultimately recognized by his flesh and blood. He was human in every sense of the word, born of a woman, developed as a child, grew in wisdom and stature as a man. He wept, he laughed, he skipped, he ran, he faced temptation, and he died. Everything about him looked like everyone else. But Gabriel wants Mary to understand that he is not. He is unique, set apart. And when she goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, she'll understand exactly what it is that makes him unique. Look at what she says, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. The angel then departed from her. Now at this time, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice, saying, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Here we have yet another testimony. This, a, a spirit-filled testimony of her, res, her relative Elizabeth. Everything she says is not something that she could have possibly known on her own. Mary left, it says, immediately after that angelic visit. So, her newly announced pregnancy was literally just a few hours old. And yet, when Elizabeth saw her, she knew immediately that she was pregnant. Now, some of you women, I understand, are hearing that thinking, that's not that big of a deal. You, you can tell when women are pregnant. They just have this glow about them. And you may be right. But for us men, we're going to keep this in the miracle category, okay? So she goes to her relative Elizabeth. But think about this. Elizabeth is not just excited that Mary is pregnant. 
after all, that wouldn't make sense. Because Elizabeth would have known that Mary is not married. She's only betrothed, engaged to be married. So why in the world would Elizabeth be excited about a premarital pregnancy? Well, the only way is because she has been filled with the Spirit of God. And she knows the truth about who this child is. God has revealed that to her. And the response of that baby that she carries in her womb was confirmation of what God had impressed upon her heart. The child that Mary will bear will be a blessing to the entire world. We know that Elizabeth, of all people, knew that God was up to something, right? I mean, her miracle in and of itself was a pregnancy. It was impossible, but God had made it possible. And then there's her husband, Zacharias. He just all of a sudden turned deaf and mute. And I'm sure he probably wrote down some explanation about having seen this angel who told him about her pregnancy before she even knew about it, and that his name would be John. But here she is, carrying this miraculous child, living with this man who is now deaf and mute. And then Mary shows up, and she knows immediately that she's pregnant and that there's something very special about this miraculous child. And she tells her what that is in verse 43. Look at that again. And how has it happened to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. Elizabeth testifies that Jesus is God incarnate. Mary is the mother of her Lord. Jesus is the Lord, God incarnate. The one who became flesh and dwelt among us, our Emmanuel, God with us. That's what the Spirit had revealed to Elizabeth. That's what makes this child separate and unique, set apart from all others. So I want us to just stop for just a minute and think about this cumulative testimony that we've heard from these two angelic witnesses and then that Spirit-filled testimony of Elizabeth. And I want you to understand that this testimony is simply the validation of things that were already said about the promise of this Messiah from the very beginning. This is not new information. It's validation of the promise that God has made. We know that that promise is that there would be one, a promised Messiah, who would come, who was fully man, flesh and blood born of a woman you don't need to turn there but in isaiah let me just give you an example of things that were written some 700 years in this case before jesus was ever born this is how this person is described this promised messiah in what you know about jesus see if this sounds familiar for he grew up speaking of this promised messiah like a tender shoot like a root out of parched ground He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. So this is going to be someone who looks like everyone else. In fact, he's so normal that we don't give him credit for being something special. He's fully man, flesh and blood. But we also know that he's fully God, conceived as a work of the Holy Spirit. Not created by God, but eternally existing and revealed in appearance as a man. The Gospel of John, when he writes it, he says it this way. He says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the Father, the only begotten, full of grace and truth. The writer of Hebrews says that he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. All this goes to say, when you see Jesus, you see God. Jesus was born with a mission. And that mission is embedded in his name, Yeshua. It literally means the Lord saves. That's why he came, to save his people from their sins. Even Isaiah spoke of that. In that same chapter, 700 years before Jesus was born, listen to what he says about the one who would come to save us from our sins. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment for our well-being fell upon him and by his stripes we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us turned our own way but the lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him that's the promise of the messiah fulfilled in the life and ministry of jesus christ he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. That's the promise fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the testimony of the heavenly witnesses. It's the testimony of spirit-filled people. It's even the testimony of Jesus himself, and it is ultimately the evidence that will be portrayed in the final judgment. And really, that evidence is given to you now. So the question we should ask ourselves is, do we believe? The evidence has been presented. Do you believe? Maybe you're here this morning, and like Elizabeth, God's Spirit has revealed that this is true. And you see and feel that resonate in your heart. You know that what is being communicated here is from the mouth of God. And if that is the case, let me encourage you, like Joseph and like Mary, you hear the message, you choose to believe, and then you commit yourself to follow him. And let me encourage you to do that this morning before you go out into that world that's going to work diligently to convince you that everything we just said 
is not true. But for many of you, you're here this morning and you know it's true. You've heard this story many times. So here's what I want to ask you. Every Christmas, we look and stand amazed at the miracle of Christ's birth, and we should. We are moved by the testimony of Mary's miraculous conception, the thought that the very creative of the world resides within her. And that should grab our attention. But here's my question. Don't we experience the very same thing as a believer in Jesus Christ? Are we not indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God within us? When Jesus himself was speaking of us, and as the disciples said after him, when he's talked about the people of God, that they would be the temple of God and the presence of God would dwell among them. So if you want to know the evidence, if you want to see a, Christ, a Christmas miracle, then look no further than the church of Jesus Christ. Because God's people have been uniquely designed to display the manifold wisdom of God. We are his witnesses. And the presence of God dwells among us. You are the Christmas miracle. The evidence of Emmanuel. God with us. And I think we should all have the same response that Elizabeth did. Remember what she said? How has it happened that the Lord has come to us? Why would I choose to believe anything different than what God has said to be true? And we have the witness of his word, the proclamation of his people, the power of his Holy Spirit. Simply reiterating year after year, generation after generation, that God has fulfilled his promise and that fulfillment is made through Jesus Christ. God incarnate, the Savior of the world. So here's what I want to do to finish up this morning. In response to all this, Mary has a song, really. It's called the Magnificat. I'm going to change the pronouns a little bit to make it personal for you and I. Because in our hearts, as we hear this story of the miracle of Christ's birth, it should be the very reaction that you and I should have today. Listen to what it says. Your soul exalts the Lord, and your spirit has rejoiced in God, our Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count you, church, blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for you, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear the Lord. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. 
He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and his offspring, which includes you. You are a child of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we think about what happens in the celebration of this Christmas miracle, God with us, know that you are the witnesses that continue to proclaim that truth in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for that promise fulfilled. The way that you repeated it generation after generation after generation so that when the angels spoke and when the people proclaimed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, it simply validated everything that you had already said would be true. And as we look back to that promise fulfilled, we have an even greater burden of proof, a greater mountain of evidence that proclaims that Jesus Christ is Lord. So may we, as your people, in whom your presence dwells, proclaim that truth with great joy and anticipation for your return as our hope and salvation. Amen. Before you leave this morning, I want to introduce a couple of folks to you. So would Chase and Allison and Adam come up? I'll start with Adam. I think Allison went to get her kids. So, uh... I want you to know that we celebrate Adam for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, as you've seen him up with our music ministry, he's been faithful to plug in and be a part of the life ministry at Melanie Park. Um, he's a, a good man who has a great influence on people's lives, and I'm excited to, to know that he wants to be a part of this church family. But we can also extend congratulations to Adam because he just graduated this weekend. So congratulations. <laughs> Job well done. And come on over, Chase. I'm going to let you in introduce your family. So I think this one. Is this on? Yes? Okay. I'm Chase. This is Lila. She's five. This is Sarah, and she'll be two next month. And this is Allison, and it's her birthday today. Oh, well, happy birthday. <laughs> Very good. Well, as you know, when folks uh, express a desire to be a part of this church family, we want to make sure you see their face, put a face with the name, and encourage you to come introduce yourself to them. Uh, these are people who, through this process of understanding what it means to be a part of this church family, have made a confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. These are witnesses to the truth that we just talked about this morning. So if you would, come tell them uh, that you're glad they're a part of our church family and introduce yourself, if you would. Let me pray for us, and then we'll close. God, thanks so much for the time this morning. Thanks for Chase and Allison and her, their family, for Adam and their desire to be a part of this body of believers, a commitment to this church family. And may we, as your people, proclaim your truth and be faithful in our witness to the uttermost parts of the world. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks. Come on over here, Adam, and people.